Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I'm joined once again by Kevin Always Beholden Hume. How's it going, Kevin? Pretty good, man. How you doing? Good, good. You know, back in the good old days of the band, you were, you were always the most responsible one. Oh, I, I appreciate that. I don't think I was, but thank you. Well, here, let me make an argument. You were a bit older. You had yeah. a car first. That minivan, was it? What kind of van was that? Oh, God. It was a 1990 Plymouth Voyager. 1990 Plymouth Voyager. Remember, remember when I slammed my hand? In the oh, I do. Right before a show. Oh, it didn't hurt me like it. I, I was know. Like it was, there was that moment of shock where I was just like, oh, God, we're getting ready to go to a show. My left, my fing, my fingers are all broken. Yeah, and actually, I was fine. Yeah, but it was like fully slammed in the door. Yeah, it, it was, was crazy. It was a little scary. Maybe that was like a a safety feature. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, though, so I got back to my argument. Most responsible. So you had the van. You were driving before us. You always had a little bit of pot squirreled away somewhere, and that's what I'm talking about. You were not wasteful. You uh-uh. did not roll entire dub sack joints and try to smoke them in one session while hotboxing the tiny no, cab. No, no. Alex's S10. I mean, I did that with you guys, but no, no. I mean, we tried to hotbox the van <laughs> pretty regularly. Oh, uh, do you have a, a sketchiest pot transaction memory? Oh, man. Um, I feel like it wasn't a transaction. I mean, the transactions back in the day were always kind of sketchy, like meet at a public park parking lot or something and you know you just do the the exchange from the cars Mm -hmm. which is always weird were you with us the time that we like went down to he like hopped some fence and it was it was some different lake area and maybe there was like a construction they were like building apartments yeah i was there and we ran yeah and like and Bart's minibus was in motion and <laughs> yeah. one of us jumped into the door. I remember that. Yeah. Security like guard a, it was some uh, apartment complex development right across from like Fremont Bart <laughs> back that's, in the day. That's right. That was that's one right. of the sketchiest ones for sure. Kids these days are spoiled with their, with their dispensaries and shit. Well, that's what I want to talk about. Um, that's not how we buy pot these days. We yeah. have. <laughs> There's still the black market, but. That's true. But we also have the slick boutique option. They mm-hmm. look like Apple stores or like really swanky cocktail lounges with mm-hmm. reclaimed wood and exposed beams. Mm-hmm. You've been to places like this. Yes. Yeah. I've been to a couple dispensaries. As expensive as it is to buy pot from those places, it's uh, like you said, still way cheaper to get an O from your dude. <laughs> um, it's even pricier and more complex to open one. Mm -hmm. Um, so cannabis is big business and as is the case in all places where capital is needed to start a business, the folks at the helm of those businesses tend to look overwhelmingly like you and me, old whiteies. (laughs) Uh Um, so this week on the podcast, um, we talk with Veronica Irwin, who recently filed a story on San Francisco's cannabis equity program an initiative that aims to keep the local weed landscape from turning into just another monochromatic monolith of minimalist design and Patagonia puffies. Um, And, you know, just kind of diversify the field, make it, make it possible for those, um, you know, who 
might not typically have access to the capital mm-hmm. uh, needed to start one of these businesses. It's hard enough to start a business in San Francisco. Oh God, um, seriously. Let alone a cannabis dispensary. Um, the cannabis equity program um, also focuses on helping individuals who uh, may have grown up in San Francisco's um, underserved neighborhoods, who may have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs, things like that. Um, But it's not perfect and it's still pretty bureaucratic. And so Veronica talked to a couple of folks there um, in that space who are trying to um, make it easier and more accessible still. So nice. we'll talk to her. Um, Speaking of uh, Patagucci puffies, (laughs) I have one. I'm so basic. (laughs) Patagucci. Um, uh, speaking of basic AF white tech dudes wearing expensive outerwear earlier this week, uh, San Francisco city hall was illuminated with the words snowflake. Mm -hmm. Um, you heard about this one, right, Kevin? I did. Yes. So yeah. Um, earlier this week it was, uh, it was broadcast. It was, it was, uh, plastered, uh, with a, some kind of projector on the side of city hall, the word snowflake. And if you were passing by, you wouldn't maybe know what it is unless you you're really in the know. Um, if you were more liberally inclined, uh, and sort of anti-tech, you might think, Oh, that's clearly some kind of tech company. Um, you know, judging by the, by the font and everything. And of course tech owns this city. So why wouldn't their name be, uh, on, on, uh, on, in lights on the side of city hall. Right. Um, if you were more, you know, conservatively minded, you might be like, well, I, I know San Francisco is just run by snowflakes, <laughs> but, um, of course that's where they'll, they'll go with it. But the, so the, the real deal is according to an initial report by Sarah Geyser, editor of our sister paper, the SF Examiner. It was not some right-wing prank intended to call out the city of San Francisco for being a bunch of lily-livered social justice warriors or PC police. The projection was an unauthorized advertisement for a San Mateo cloud computing company Uh, called Snowflake. Got it. So just for the record, Snowflake just uh, set a record for the largest ever software IPO. What does Snowflake do? Well, according to an article about the company on CNBC, they provide technology that allows their clients, like DoorDash, to quickly analyze and share vast amounts of data and increase capacity as needed, rather than relying on databases that are tied to hardware. So, Hmm. yeah, I don't. You don't understand what that means, do you? No, not at all. None of us understand what that means. Well, some of us do, I guess. The people who are making money around here. Here's the thing. While so much of the economy flounders tech companies, especially like, you know, the Amazons and the Googles, and apparently the snowflakes of the world are riding high, um, at least if the stock market is an indication. And it's dispiriting for anyone who isn't benefiting from it. I, I know that folks in tech feel defensive when they are mocked and attacked. And honestly, if they're making a ton of money, Uh, Maybe they don't care. They probably feel pretty smug about it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I wonder if like they understand why we hate them. (laughs) I mean, they just it's they have such an entitled attitude about it all. You know, you know, like I mean, we give them so much power too. like how much influence Zuckerberg and like uh, Jack from Twitter have over the electorate. 
the economy of this area and the the country is just insane you know like just they just have so much influence that it's ridiculous yeah and i think also i mean to be fair when we get down to it uh at least me i can only speak for myself i'm a petty jealous shallow person and i wish i had that kind of money but i i also hate them because of things like ipos because when a group of people get up on that platform above the trading floor of the new york stock exchange and ring the bell and all of a sudden billions of dollars are transmitted uh basically directly to their pockets um like i'm like what did you guys do to you know, I know the service that Snowflake offers must have some kind of value, but it's not, it's not a bridge. It's not a freeway. It's not a skyscraper. It's not, it's not raw materials that I can hold in my hand. And the money that's propping this company up, at least the money that's like coming from an IPO, it isn't given in exchange for something tangible either. Sort of, it's just speculation. And in that CNBC interview I mentioned earlier, which was published the day after the IPO, um, after the stock lost 10% in valuation. Um, Snowflake CEO Frank Slootman um, is quoted as saying this, quote, a stock is worth exactly what somebody wants to pay for it. It's like talking about the weather. It is what it is. Tomorrow's another day. We'll see what it brings. You know what that reminds me of, Kevin? What's that? Reminds me of that scene in Wolf of Wall Street when Leo has lunch with Matthew McConaughey and he's just like, fuck the clients. Number one rule of Wall Street. Nobody, I don't care if you're Warren Buffett or if you're Jimmy Buffett, nobody knows if the stock is going to go up, down, sideways, or in fucking circles. Least of all stockbrokers. Mm-hmm. It's all a fugazi. You know what a fugazi is? Mm-hmm. Fugazi, it's a fake. Yeah, Fugazi, Fugazi, it's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It's never landed. It is no matter. It's not on the elemental chart. It, it's not fucking real. Right? All right? All right. <laughs> Stay with me. Mm-hmm. We don't create shit. We don't build anything. It's this spectral, intangible thing, the spending of electronic credits in the hope of reaping even more electronic credits. And it's just like they're 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 buying and selling things made of light which in a roundabout way brings me full circle to the days of smoking weed in the van <laughs> when we had so few responsibilities that we would sit there uh and listen to the terrence mckenna lecture series on tape oh man expanding our expanding our minds expanding our minds expanding man. our young fragile <laughs> minds oh i don't know how much of it was hippie psychobabble but you know i think some of it was interesting i I still think of bits and pieces about that's one of the things that stuck with me his prognostication that we would be one day uh buying and selling things made of light and i think Mm. you know i think he's talking about information transmitted over the internet Uh, i think you yeah that sounds about right and you know back then i thought it was trippy but now it's just kind of like my mundane reality (laughs) It's like um, too real. Yeah, man. I mean, uh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. It's just you know these are these are the musings of of Nick Veronin as he, mm-hmm. he sits in his home office, mm-hmm. um, in front of his computer, hours at a time, hours at a time, <sighs> writing the stories. 
Well, speaking of haves and have-nots and institutional inequality in San Francisco, we also have Keith Knight on this week's podcast, the cartoonist behind the K Chronicles, which got its start in the pages of SF Weekly, has a new feather in his cap. Uh, He is the co-creator of Woke, a new show on Hulu, loosely based on his strip and his life here in San Francisco. Nice. Keith no longer lives here, but he did spend 16 years of his life here, developing his voice as a cartoonist and honing his social commentary. It's a funny show, and he's a thoughtful guy. So um, stay tuned. We'll be right back with Veronica Irwin and Keith Knight. Welcome back. We're joined by SF Weekly contributor Veronica Irwin. This week, Veronica had a story about San Francisco's Cannabis Equity Program. The piece, titled Cannabis Equity Applicants Still Face Barriers, explores how bureaucratic red tape and vulture capital is undermining the intent of the program. Welcome to the podcast, Veronica. Thank you for having me. So why don't you just start by telling us about your story? Yeah. So my story is about the country's third social equity program, San Francisco social equity program. Um, Oakland's was the first in the nation and Los Angeles was the second. Um, But there's some pretty unique features to San Francisco's cannabis equity program. And because of that, um, we've seen very different results, basically, in who's been able to make use of it. Um, So my story was basically, you know, two years after this social equity program was founded, how well is it actually doing at its mission in righting the wrongs of the war on drugs and allowing more primarily black and brown uh, entrepreneurs to enter the cannabis space in San Francisco? Okay. So uh, let's get a little bit more into this uh, cannabis equity program. What is it? Um, What is it intended to do? And then why isn't it working in practice? Yeah. So social equity um, in cannabis is, like I said, it's generally uh, programs that are created to uplift black and brown entrepreneurs mainly. A lot of social equity programs qualify their applicants um, based on whether or not they've ever served time or suffered from having cannabis uh, criminal charges, um, or also whether or not they grew up in zip codes in communities that were heavily policed and had disproportionate amounts of cannabis arrests. Um, So San Francisco's social equity program does exactly that. Um, It basically puts in a couple of different measures that are supposed to allow black and brown entrepreneurs to enter the cannabis space with less barriers to entry. Um, The main barriers to entry that we see are access to capital, access to technology and um, financial education. Um, and then access to real estate. And so San Francisco Social Equity Program waives their introductory permitting fee. Um, It allows them to take part in different incubators that can help them either navigate the finances or navigate the tech space. But I find very, very few people are really using those. Um, 
but it's mainly it's mainly just opening up that permitting process. Um, and what is really unique about San Francisco's social equity program is it's the only one that currently is only allowing social equity applicants to even apply for a cannabis permit. Um, what is happening is a lot of people are running into issues where because they don't have the capital to start, um, and because a lot of investors want to start cannabis businesses in San Francisco, um, basically a lot of non-equity investors are pairing up with equity applicants. Um, the investor brings the capital and equity applicant brings the eligibility for the permit application. Um, and it kind of puts equity partners, equity applicants in a situation where they're never financially independently running their own businesses. Um, and that's causing a problem for a lot of people. I see. Um, so you have a couple of sources in your story, uh, Sean Richards and Cindy De La Vega, who are working to help people through the equity process. They are essentially there, from what I can tell, to assist people to get this assistance. What does the San Francisco Equity Group do? So the San Francisco Equity Group basically answers this kind of gap in the program, where basically this program exists, but it's very bureaucratically complicated. Pretty much every social equity program is very bureaucratically complicated. There's a lot of verification you have to provide as an applicant to prove that you served criminal charges, obviously, but also like to prove that you grew up in a zip code that was disproportionately affected. A lot of times you need to bring that evidence. Um, and then once you are, you know, in the process of starting your own business, you have to fi pass fire safety inspections and you, you know, all sorts of different clearances that you need to own a storefront in San Francisco. Um, and a lot of equity applicants have not gone to college. A lot of equity applicants haven't finished high school either. Cindy, I believe, had not finished high school. Um, and they don't necessarily have the know-how to navigate all of that bureaucracy. Um, Sean Richards, when he was talking to me, basically said, like, I don't think anybody without an MBA could navigate this stuff because um, it's just really excessively complicated. Um, and so San Francisco Equity Group, more than anything, provides just a lot of resources and helps people figure out the order of steps you need to follow, essentially, to move through all this bureaucracy. Something Cindy kept telling me was that she would submit one form to the Office of Cannabis and just not know what she was supposed to do next. And if she had not joined the San Francisco Equity Group, there would be nobody telling her, okay, your next step is to go to the fire department, or your next step is to get uh, cleared by the Board of Supervisors, or your next step is to make sure that you have uh, this kind of signage posted in your window. Um, so more than anything, what they're really known for is this resources page that they have on their website. And then they have a whole coalition of people that have been working in the San Francisco equity program. Sean Richards, for example, is he owns his own store and he's one of the few people that has actually completed this process. And they're kind of there just to answer people's questions and be a sounding board and help them translate the paperwork. So the story ends with Sean uh, telling you that he believes the San Francisco cannabis equity program is, is working hard and is on the right side of history. But um, he, he and Cindy, you know, make no bones about the fact that there are challenges currently and, and down the road. Um, what do they say needs to change and, and get better? And, and how do they envision that happening? More than anything, it seems like equity partners need more of an opportunity to be financially independent, or at least to work towards financial independence. 
like I said, San Francisco is unique in that only the social equity applicants can apply. And so you basically have this situation where there are a lot of what they call vulture investors, um, basically investors that want to make money um, in any space, that term, but in this case, in the cannabis space in San Francisco. And they have a tendency to go out and find equity applicants that may not have the know-how or the experience to know when they're being taken advantage of and to know if a contract is not actually beneficial to them or to know if they're actually making as much money out of a deal as they could be. Um, They go to those applicants and say, hey, we're going to start a business. We're going to start that business that you wanted to start. And they'll pay them some some fee up front. And then that social equity partner will never be a decision maker in that business ever again. Um, In some cases, they're paid up front and then they never uh, reap any of the profits of the business. In other cases, some of these investors are just paying out their equity partner monthly, but that equity partner never, you know, comes into the store. It doesn't they don't decide what inventory they don't decide who's hired and fired and things like that. Um, Sean Richards was very careful to say that San Francisco is not doing necessarily the wrong thing. Um, All of the sources I spoke to think San Francisco has the right idea by limiting permit applications to social equity partners, but they don't provide enough resources for those social equity partners to go on and run their own business afterward or to have just a serious financial stake in the business to like form a 50-50 equal parts contract with their co-owners and co-founders of their businesses. Um, In Oakland, on the other hand, they have a much more robust grant and loan program. San Francisco just started their grant and loan program much later than Oakland. Um, Oakland also just passed two uh, multi-use manufacturing spaces that are actually uh, subsidized by city and state funding. Um, And so that allows social equity applicants to start their own business without having to pay, pay for the real estate the whole time while they're going through this whole bureaucratic process. Things like that that really alleviate the financial burden don't exist in San Francisco. And so the social equity applicants are just much more vulnerable to these vulture investors. Um, And that doesn't necessarily mean that San Francisco needs to stop limiting permit applications to social equity applicants. Both Cindy and Sean said that would be a bad idea, but there probably just need to be more opportunities for uh, the social equity applicants to get their own financing. Okay. Uh, You can read Cannabis Equity Applicants Still Face Barriers on our website, sfweekly.com, under the Culture tab. Thanks so much for joining us today, Veronica. Thank you for having me. We're back with Keith Knight, a.k.a. Keith, the cartoonist behind the long-running syndicated comic strip, The K Chronicles, which, along with Keith's life in San Francisco, is the inspiration behind the new Hulu series, Woke, starring Lamorne Morris, who many will remember as Winston from New Girl. Welcome to the podcast, Keith. Hey, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, let's get started. Um, can, can you just... Uh, 
for listeners who aren't familiar with you and those who could use a refresher, can you kind of catch us up on um, how we got to this Hulu show? Give us the rundown of um, Keith. Oh, man, I guess that's a long story. So um, I uh, I am known as Keith Knight, a gentleman cartoonist, and I got my start professionally as a cartoonist in San Francisco. That's when I made my name. I lived there from 1990 to 2007, and um, and I got my start uh, on a regular basis in the SF Weekly way, way back in the day. So Nice. Yeah, yeah. The SF Weekly ran my strip every other week, and uh, from there, uh, I jumped to one of the other, one of the big dailies uh, to do it weekly. And so... Um, that's where people know me most and best is for my autobiographical strip, The K Chronicles, which basically chronicled anything that was going on in my life at the time. Um, I was also in a band called The Marginal Prophets. And, um, you know, we played all over the place uh, in the Bay Area and beyond. Um, our biggest shows were um, playing Shoreline Amphitheater and also um, playing Naked at the Fillmore for. <laughs> A children's fundraiser so <laughs> um, but um you know i left in 2007 when really like sort of my industry sort of the alt weekly newspaper industry it was being it was devastated because of obviously all the online ad i mean all the revenue took off to being online and so um it was like the writing was on the wall so <laughs> you know I had just gotten married a few years before and we decided to move down to Los Angeles. Um, I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to <laughs> be able to continually do uh, be a cartoonist. So let's try to develop something down in LA for television. So I went down there uh, the first three years. I was very reluctant. I was very San Franciscan. I did not have a car. I refused to have a car. Ah. Uh, and it wasn't until I inherited a car three years later drove it from Boston that I realized that you have to have a car in LA to get any sort of connections or anything like that and all the schmoozy stuff. So uh, I met uh, a really good producer who introduced me to a few really good people and uh, and they introduced me to some other folks who had a production company and another production company was eventually brought to Sony and uh, Sony said, yeah, let's try to get this sold. And so um, they paired me up with a, uh, an experienced television writer and Marshall Todd. He co-wrote the original Barbershop. And we developed uh, a pitch based around um, some of my stories. And one of them was a story about me um, being profiled by the police. And um, and so we pitched it. They dug it. Uh, we, we pitched it to HBO, Netflix, Hulu. Amazon, but Hulu bit, and um, and they were really, they were amazing, and we got it together, wrote a script, uh, that did the pilot, and went to series, and that's, and the rest is history. <laughs> I'm okay. a, uh, I'm a 30 year overnight success. <laughs> I think that just about brings us up to speed. Um, so let's talk about the show when. Woke begins. We meet Keith, loosely based on you, along with two of his roommates, uh, Gunther and Clovis, as well as a smattering of other characters. Uh, yeah. The Keith of episode one, um, as we can all see, is a black man. 
uh, as you are. Uh, and in contrast to another black character on the show, Ayana, a newspaper editor played by Sashir Zamata, Keefe seems content to just let daily microaggressions roll off his back, like when uh, the guy on the bus learns that he is the cartoonist behind Toast and Butter. And then he says, I thought you'd be taller. Um, the implication, of course, is that he is surprised that Keefe is black. So Keefe soon goes through a transformation where his attitude changes. And, um, you know, I wanted to ask, is this autobiographical? Does Hulu Keefe match real life Keefe? Well, um, you know, one of the reasons why he's named Keith instead of Keith is we wanted to differentiate, differentiate between myself and the character. Um, right. I would say that, you know, the series, we stuffed like probably 35 years of my life into a, a, an eight episode season. So, um, you know, the... I had two roommates. I lived in San Francisco. I was not uh, about to make it big with a, an, uh, a cartoon that didn't really say anything. Um, I had been doing um, my comic strip about about a lot of different issues um, for a while when the police thing happened to me. So if anything, um, it sort of made me double and triple down on what I was doing um, even more aggressively. Um, I think the thing that really surprised me the most about what happened with my police incident, it's dramatized. It's a lot more dramatized in the show. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't thrown to the ground or anything, but I did have a white roommate jump off a bus and come running at the cops, like screaming and going nuts. And the cops treated him like they worked for him. Um, and it was much different than the way they treated me. And so that was... You know, I mean, again, I've done comics about it and I know it happens. But once you see it like laid right out in front of you, it's it's it comes as a real shock that, you know, um, your your number can come up at any time. So uh, we just thought that was a really good jumping off point for um, an awakening for the character. And so. We were like, so what would it be like? How could we visually talk about being woke for a cartoonist? And we just looked at what if inanimate objects came to life, became animated objects, and they had their own perspectives on what's going on. So this trash can that sit outside this black barbershop and watch the neighborhood gentrify, like, you know, he could have his own perspective. So those were the type of things that we really wanted to do. We wanted to use the the animated characters to say things that one the 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 human characters might not say, but also couldn't say sometimes. A lot of the humor in the show, it's a sitcom, um, comes from comes from these animated characters. Um, humor can be a powerful tool in calling out systemic ills. Um, and as the show progresses and, and Keith starts to have these visions of the inanimate objects, um, almost all of them voiced by black actors and comedians like J.B. Smoove and uh, Cedric the Entertainer, they're urging him to call bullshit on casual racism, as you said, gentrification, cultural appropriation and more. Um, but a lot of the show's humorous moments also are found in the interplay between Keith and his roommates. So there's uh, Gunther 
played by Blake Anderson of Workaholics. He's a white dude who, to my mind, kind of embodies like the progressive in name only kind of guy. He's happy to call out institutional racism, but then goes back to uh, drinking and selling his quote unquote energy powder, which is, of course, cocaine. <laughs> um, then there's Clovis, played by T. Murph, uh, black, and he's a black guy um, who has lived his own experience of inequity but is doing pretty well for himself in the show and, and chooses not to make a big deal out of it. And then there's Keith who again at the beginning is not making a big deal out of entrenched biases of the world, but who, as we learn going forward may have been doing that more because he was naive. At least this is my interpretation. So uh, that's a big long windup to say, can you tell us about the interplay between these characters and, and how they relate to people you've, actually known in your life and, and things that you've actually experienced in your life? Well, I mean, uh, Gunther and Clovis are sort of combinations of different people that I knew in San Francisco. Um, I, you know, there was a time when I had a black roommate and a white roommate. It's not totally based on them, um, but it's just a composite of so many different people. But um, it was important for for me to establish um, a black character that was sort of the yang to, to Keith's ying. So, um, you know, this character would be sort of the anti-woke guy um, <laughs> to say like, do not, do not be woke because that, that you'll wind up broke. And then that was his, his big line in it. And um, he, we, I, we just wanted a, a, a different perspective of somebody who, you know, was world wary of it and, um, and maybe cynical. Um, but we didn't want any of the characters to be completely wrong or completely right. And I think that was, that's one of the appeals of sort of all the characters in it is no one's completely wrong. No one's completely right. Everyone has, um, you know, a, a valid take on certain things. So, um, well, that was important for that character. And then Gunther is sort of, he, yeah, he may see the, 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 you know, the blatant racism stuff, but he is um, naive when it comes to his own privilege. And um, so I think it was important for us to, to show that type of character where um, there's this sort of thing. I don't know if it's like that anymore in the Bay area, but, this this idea of people that pat themselves on the back for being so open-minded and cool in San Francisco, you know, and um, well, you know, and and ignore their own privileges and sort of just like, oh, at least we're not, you know, at least we're not like those people over there or this or that. Well, at least we're not like the South. But and and this is another thing. My strip has run uh, a bunch of different places. And the longest place it's ever run is, is Salt Lake City, Utah. Still does to this day. Hmm. And I've had more times my strip censored or not run because of content in the Bay Area and in Marin County more than any other place. And it's usually editors who are so worried about offending somebody that they don't run anything at all, you know? Um, so paranoid that they overcompensate. And that's in it of itself is this bizarre, you know, this bizarre thing. So um, I like I like how the SF Weekly article that came out was kind of like it's a love letter and also a 
critique of San Francisco. I like the title of your article. Keith in the show eventually answers the sort of call to, to be woke. He wakes up, he, he takes up his pen and he creates images and writes words as a, as a comic or as a, a cartoonist does that address the issues um, he had been silent on before. Um, the first piece that truly resonates with people is a flyer he puts up um, around the city uh, advertising black people for rent, uh, quote unquote. The idea, I think, is that white folks can uh, boost their street cred or, or give the illusion of diversity to a party by calling the number. The flyer goes viral and Keefe is um, overwhelmed by the response and has mixed feelings about the response. He kind of goes back and forth between feeling like he did something important and made a statement to feeling like he might have screwed up. Um, does this have a parallel in your career? Have you ever, um, you know, worried about whether you hit the mark? Oh, well, th yeah, that happens. <laughs> that happens all the time. But <laughs> I actually did hang up posters called Black People for Rent. It, it literally said that, Black People for Rent. Um, that's taken from a real life incident where I put up Black People for Rent posters in formerly Black neighborhoods um, around the city. And um, I had a generic voicemail um, number um, on the on the flyer. And I never answered the call. I just had people leave messages. And everything, all the different messages that came in are pretty much depicted in the show. Um, I had people that got the joke. I had people who um, were horrified, sort of, you know, what you would call the bleeding heart liberals going, wow, what is this? Oh, my God. And then um, I had people, I had racists call. I had people, I had the press call. I had people who... It sounded like they were really inquiring about the service they called. But again, the strangest and the most calls I got were from black people looking for work. And that to me, that was the call that I did not expect. Those were the calls I did not expect. And just the amount of them made me sit there and say, like, this is more than just a, a comic, a cartoon experiment. This is something more. So. I'm glad I was able to somehow work it into the show in some way, shape, or form. Obviously, a lot has changed since uh, 1990, um, but probably, unfortunately, a lot of it has stayed the same when it comes to um, equality, racial justice, um, institutional racism. Um, and we're currently living through a, a very active moment with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, your thoughts on it from someone who, from a black man who has been producing commentary in this vein now for 30 plus years. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, frankly, I don't think it's a resurgence. I just think white people are starting to... <laughs> starting to come around like okay. and it it took sort of this combination of um it took a a combination of a lot of things happening so everybody was stuck inside because of covid so um so and it took this murderer who's in the police department 
standing, you know, putting his knee on the neck of a black man and stare into the camera with his arm casually in his pocket and murdering somebody and and with a look of nothing's going to happen to me. And and the only way he could feel that way is if there's a, a an institution of allowing police to do this. And so white people are seeing that murder like unedited for the first time they're seeing this um like and and they're seeing nothing being done about it and they're they're and they can't go to work they can't go to work and forget about it and we have somebody in the white house who has no desire to bring anybody together i think if there was someone else in office they would have stepped up and they would have made everyone say we got to come together and this and that really got people saying oh wow this really you know white people are like this really is horrendous and they got out and and joined the black lives matter movement i don't think the black lives matter movement has a resurgence it's just white people started you know it, uh, approval rating with white people went from 30 percent to like 60 percent a lot of white writers when they ask me about the show they go oh the timing of the show is so amazing how did you how did you know that it's going to be you know the, this police brutality stuff and it's just like you know what like this show would have been relevant 20 years ago 40 years ago 60 years ago it'll be relevant 20 years in the future 40 years in the future because police brutality and racism is evergreen in this country you know one of the one of the funny things is after like a week and a half i've had white people go Oh my God, this is so exhausting, you know, like doing this, you know, black people have been doing this for decades for the moment they come out of the womb fighting this thing and white people are getting tired after a month and a half of it. Okay. Well, um, you can read Grace Z. Lee's recap of Woke on our website, sfweekly.com under the culture tab, and you can watch Woke on Hulu. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Keith. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the SF Weekly for giving me my start. All right. We'll be right back. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced, engineered, and recorded by me, Nick Maronin. Our theme music was composed by The Armature. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast through Apple or Spotify, follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sfweeklypodcast, and check out our website, sfweekly.com. See you next week.